ahead and um, open up to Romans chapter 13, and we're looking at verses 8 through 14 this morning. Um, So last week, we jumped into, we jumped back into Romans after we took a pretty long break for December and part of January. Um, So let's do kind of a quick review of where we've been so that we can situate our passage this morning right where Paul needs for it to be situated. Um, Before Christmas, we covered chapters 1 through 11, and those chapters display the love of God for us through the work of Jesus Christ. So God has made a way for lost people to be restored to him. Now, in chapters 12 through 16, we're working our way through um, these chapters display the transformative effects that that love has on us. So how it changes and transforms our lives. So very practically, Paul gives chapters 12 through 16 to show us what new life in Christ looks like. Last week, Ford walked us through how our relationship to the governing authorities is transformed from one of rebellion to one of submission. In these verses, Paul's going to build on that concept to show us how our relationship with society is transformed by Jesus. So in these verses, we're going to be called to put on three things. So let's start getting dressed. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. They say, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, Do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So in the preceding verses right before this, Paul had told us that if you owe taxes, you ought to pay your taxes. Um, If you owe respect or honor, you should give those things. Now, however, he says there is a debt that you won't ever be able to fully pay off, and that is the debt to love. Believers can never say, I have loved enough. That's because we're continual partakers of God's love. He gives it freely to us every day, so it should be flowing out of us. As he pours it in, out it should come. God's love never comes to an end. So how can ours? When God's love breaks into our lives, it transforms our relationships with those around us. We no longer live out of, um, for our own good, but we live for the good of others. God desires to transform our hearts and to continually show his love to the world. Then we come to this interesting phrase about love fulfilling the law. To fulfill means to complete or to bring to full expression. So love does not replace the law. It completes it or fills it. So see how this works. You can take the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder them, right? I'm not going to steal from them. The intention of the law shows us how to love our neighbor. But Jesus showed us how love goes even further by saying that not only our actions, but also our attitudes need to be filled with love. 
So Jesus talked about if I love, you know, if I don't murder my neighbor, but I go ahead and think angry thoughts about them, I haven't fulfilled the law. I have not truly loved my neighbor. Love fulfills the law because love deals with both our actions and our attitudes. These verses show us that we cannot join the world in saying love is all you need. Scripture is clear that law and love are inherently entwined. They're two strands of the same rope. We keep the commandments, but we fulfill them with love. So the obedient thing is the loving thing, and the loving thing is the obedient thing. We do not love the society in which we live by compromising on obeying God's standards. Rather, we love it through our obedience to God's commands. Love has a lot of definitions in the English language. Um, we might say, I love pizza on one hand, and then turn around and say, I love my husband. Those clearly have different meanings. So what kind of love is God calling us to put on? The word for love that's used here in these verses is the Greek word agape. This is the specific and unique love that God demonstrates to us in Christ Jesus. Agape love is unmerited. It's gracious, sacrificial, and always seeking the benefit of the other. The ultimate demonstration of agape love led to the cross, where Jesus gave up his life for us while we were yet sinners. This is where the roots of agape love run deep. All of our demonstrations of agape love begin at the cross. Because it's the agape love of God for us that when we truly understand it, brings about agape love in us. This radical and sacrificial love that we have experienced has transformed us and it now lives inside of us and flows out of us. So what does it look like to clothe ourselves in this kind of love? To get up in the morning and to put on agape love. Picture dressing yourself in these qualities. Agape love is totally selfless. It is others-oriented. It does not change whether the love given is returned or not. This kind of love is never wasted because its value doesn't rest in whether it's repaid or not. Agape love doesn't have to be repaid because it's already been purchased by Jesus. Agape love is sacrificial. 1 John 3.16 tells us this is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. The kind of love that we're called to is a self-sacrificing, life-laying-down kind of love. The kind of love that sets aside its own agenda for others. The kind of love that is willing to suffer for others. Agape love doesn't just give people what they want. It goes beyond that. It gives people what they need. Sometimes it's easy to just give someone a dollar when what they really need is for you to take them to lunch and listen to their story and share the gospel with them. Or sometimes it's easy for us to just tell someone what we know they want to hear 
when they really need us to lovingly share the truth with them. Agape love is willing to be uncomfortable. Agape love goes the extra mile. Agape love doesn't, it goes beyond feelings. It doesn't live in how I feel about this person today. It has its roots in the will. This love doesn't worry about feeling love, but choosing love. Because of this, agape love can even love an enemy. So this kind of love is not just an action. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a disposition that seeks the good of others. It knows no bounds. This kind of love can triumph in the darkest places. So this is the love of God that has transformed us. And this is the love that we're called to transform our world with. So how do we do this, though? Right? This, this isn't the kind of love that we can kind of muster up on our own. You can't just will yourself to do it. Um, Galatians 5 tells us that this agape love is a fruit of the Spirit. So to love largely and radically unselfishly and liberally requires the help of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us the will to love, and when we choose to walk in obedience and put on love, God shows up in miraculous ways. We're called to agape love, and we're enabled to live it out with the help of the Holy Spirit. So where might you need to take off bitterness? or apathy, selfishness, or anger, and choose to put on love. God calls us to throw these things off like dirty laundry and to put on the beautiful garments of love so that all the world gets a glimpse of him. Agape love shouts into the world that there is a God who loved you enough to lay down his life for you. In order to live like this, Paul says, we need to understand the present time. So he starts in verse 11 by saying, and do this understanding the present time. So put on agape love. Why? Because you understand the present time. Paul continues saying, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So in this section, an alarm clock is going off to wake us up. When Paul says the night is almost over and the day is almost here, he's using this common biblical phrase to refer to the second coming of Christ. The day refers to the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus will come back for his own. The night represents the current time that we're in where sin and Satan are still at work in our world. But every day brings us one day closer to Jesus' return. It is imminent. It is certain. We don't know when it will be, but we know that it is coming. And that hope completely reorients our lives. We're transformed from a people who live for this world alone to a people who live for our eternal home. The world says live as if there's no tomorrow, but for Christians, tomorrow is everything. 
Paul is saying, orient your lives around this eternal truth, not on what is right in front of you. That will transform your priorities. If we don't alert ourselves to the fact that Jesus is coming back, we'll sleepwalk through this life, focused on ourselves and oblivious to the desperate spiritual needs around us. We'll channel our time, our money, our energy towards temporary things instead of things that are eternal. So we're asked to imagine that the day has dawned and Jesus is coming. Now how should I behave? What is eternally important? What choices can I make that honor his sacrifice? The alarm clock is ringing, and we can't hit the snooze button on this one. This is not the time for children of God to live for things of this world. There is a day when Jesus will return, and we're called to be ready for it. So the Christian life is not a slumber party. It's a battle. The picture is that the alarm clock has gone off, and not only is it time to wake up and get up, it's time to get dressed. We need to take off our nighttime clothing, which Paul calls deeds of darkness, and we need to put on the right daytime attire for soldiers of Christ, the armor of light. So if you knew you were getting ready to head into battle, um, would you get up and go dressed in your PJs? I mean, that would be crazy, right? (laughs) Um, I don't know any soldiers that do that. When you get dressed for battle, you put on armor, right? You gather up your weapons. You prepare yourself. We're called to wake up to the reality that as believers, we are in a spiritual battle. We not only fight against sin and temptation, but we fight for faith, and we fight for God's kingdom to advance. Light overcomes darkness. So when we dress for battle in the armor of light, we're equipped to overcome sin's temptations and to shine as lights in a dark world. We're called to throw off those things in our lives that belong in the dark and have no place in eternity, just like you would throw off dirty clothes. 1 John 1.5 tells us, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. So there's one last piece of our outfit today, and this one is actually the most important. Um, Paul shows us in these last two verses. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So this last contrast is between wearing our own sinful nature or clothing ourselves with Jesus Christ as Lord. In the list of dirty laundry that Paul covers in verse 13, those were particularly relevant to Christians living in first century Rome. A lot of um, Roman culture revolved around these religious festivals that were really just covers for extravagant, sinful behavior. Paul tells the Roman Christians and us to put off that kind of behavior. Those behaviors belong in the dark, but you belong in the light. 
But look at the last two in that list, dissension and jealousy. Those are attitudes. So Paul's list here is not exhaustive. This isn't a list of everything we should throw off. Um, But it's meant to show us there are behaviors and there are attitudes that belong to our old sinful nature. And we're called to cast these aside and to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we have um, the image of baptism. Because it reminds us of the truth that we're dead to sin and we're alive to Christ. So today, Charlie's going to image forth his decision to let go of his old way of life and to be clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, baptism is the act of taking off the old, dirty clothes of sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ. We must bury our old way of life so that we can be raised to new life in Christ. And once you make this decision, the righteousness of Christ is yours. It's been bought with his blood. It can never be destroyed. It can never be taken away. God sees you as clothed in that righteousness no matter what, on your good days and your bad days. Paul's made that clear throughout Romans, right? The whole first half of the book was all about this. But the context here in this verse is that you have been made righteous in Christ, but you can join God in his sanctifying work by daily taking hold of that righteousness and living in it. So it's in this daily working out of this that we're being made more like Jesus. Every time that we put off sinful things and we put on Jesus, we become a little bit more like him. We need this transformation in our lives, in our families, in our cities, and in our world. And it starts with what we choose to put on when we wake up. We can either put on the flesh or we can choose to put on love and light and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we enter into this celebration of baptism, let's see with fresh eyes that it's a call for all of us to remember who we are wearing, what he has done for us, and how much it cost him. Amen.